Welcome to Temporary Experts, the show where two professional science communicators investigate relevant science stories from the everyday, research the heck out of it, and discuss their findings with you. Howdy there, folks. She's Sarah Bannister. And he's Davis Leong, and together we're your Temporary temporary experts. Experts. This week, we're talking about space Space junk, junk. because it's in the news. You might have heard about a Chinese rocket stage that recently landed in the Indian Ocean. It garnered quite a bit of international attention because it was an uncontrolled descent from near Earth or from low orbit. Which means that they didn't quite know where it was going to land. They thought probably the Indian Ocean, but they they didn't make sure. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we thought we would... uh, we would capitalize on the kind of the momentum that this story had from the past week, sort of before it peters out now that the rocket has has landed, and uh, and visit sort of like what makes these types of descents such a problem, or why it's become such a thing that that you know space agencies like NASA and the Russian Space Agency and things like that are so concerned with. And more so than that, we thought that this would be a really good opportunity to take a look at the problem of space junk, in orbital lower, debris, orbital debris as it is <laughs> academically referred to. Yeah, and the re- and so the reason we thought we would talk about this, right? Because like, you know, it, this Chinese rocket landing in the Indian Ocean or, uh, and having this this decaying orbit and being kind of this uncontrolled descent, it might be the first time in recent memory that people have thought about this issue of things coming back down from space. I mean, obviously, SpaceX is super popular. Uh, with their mission to kind of create this reusable rocket, but a rocket that obviously is a controlled descent back to a launch pad. But this is not the first time in history that uh, that objects have fallen out of orbit, controlled and uncontrolled. In fact, there's been some very famous examples throughout history. Yes, there have. Like in uh, 1978, there was a Russian uh, Soviet satellite called Cosmos 954 that actually uh, came down and they it was supposed to eject its radioactive core out in space and it didn't do it. Uh, it, this was a, not just a, uh, an uncontrolled re-entry, it was a, a, an accident, right? Uh, but it came back down and it crashed in the Northwest Territories, actually in Canada, and scattered pieces of this radioactive uranium core over a 124,000 square kilometer area. That was not good. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's, a, there's a very famous example from uh, NASA as well, where Skylab, which was one of the first, uh, which was the first sort of space station uh, that was ever put into space. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about Skylab uh, later in the podcast. But uh, it was decommissioned and it had a sort of partially controlled reentry where they were trying to target it over the Indian Ocean and, uh, or sorry, the, yeah, the South Pacific and it uh, it actually came down. Parts of it came down in the Australian outback and caused some some damage to some some uh, you know farmland and some city. I think there was a village as well that uh, famously sued the United States or sent them a four hundred dollar bill for littering, something like that, <laughs> um, which was which was recently paid by a Californian radio host in like two thousand and eight, crowdfunded <laughs> paying the paying the town. So that's a funny story, but. Good thing he didn't uh, add interest because that happened in 1979. Yeah. <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And uh, there so, was mm, there sorry. was a there was a pretty funny American response to Skylab coming down because they they knew about it before like they knew it was coming down before it hit and a lot of like European uh, European countries and other countries were cons- quite concerned about this whereas the American public started throwing parties <laughs> they started throwing Skylab parties which is pretty. Uh, 
pretty in line, I feel like, with a lot of us. The end of the world parties, if you had one in 2012 and all of that, people were like, oh, our government messed up, eh? Have a party. We'll have a Skylab shirt. They were selling uh, T-shirts with targets on them. Yeah. It's, I didn't. I did not know that. I did not know that there were Skylab parties. Uh, but yeah. So, so we thought. So first, we thought we would we would sort of prime everybody a little bit about uh, the story around this Chinese rocket. So China is actually in the process of building their own space station, and they use this rocket, this Long March Five B, which is their heavy lift rocket. So when you think about, uh, so some of these newer rockets have these different designations, like heavy, super heavy. Uh, and basically what that means is it refers to the amount of payload that one of these rockets uh. can take up into space. So you think about, yeah, you might've heard, um, I think it was three or four years ago, uh, SpaceX launched the Falcon Heavy. And that was this heavy launch vehicle that was going to be used to kind of, you know, take large components up into low earth orbit and could potentially be used to send things as far as like Mars and stuff. And then what's happening right now is NASA and a few other companies and, uh, and you know, a few other private space entities and also other governments are trying to produce what's called like a super heavy launch vehicle. And that's something that would be used to send like human payloads and particularly heavy payloads to like Mars and beyond and things like that. Oh, neat. Yeah. So what happened was they had, they launched the first module of this, uh, this Tiangong space station, which means heavenly palace in Chinese. And uh, they launched the main Tianhe module uh, on April 29th. Uh, it, was a, it was successfully inserted into low Earth orbit. And then the second stage rocket. So if you sort of remember um, those like instructional videos or whatever from maybe when you were a kid about like the Saturn V launches. Saturn V was a multi-stage rocket. Also basically a heavy, super heavy launch vehicle. Um, you can see these chart, these size chart comparisons of how big the Saturn V rocket was compared to like the space shuttle. And it's it, it's not even close, right? Yeah. Like you, you sometimes think about these things on the same scale because like, well, they got launched from the same spot. They're both rockets, right? Yeah, they they're, must... both, they're both big. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but yeah, like the, si the scale difference between the Saturn V and any of the space shuttles is, is insane, right? Like, you know, yeah. it's, it's so, so, so much bigger. So if you remember these videos or, or things of that nature from the Apollo missions, you'll remember that like that rocket had several booster stages, right? So there are parts of the rocket that fall off one to the other as it starts to exit the atmosphere and exit Earth orbit. And you can still find these today. I actually hadn't seen any of these videos until about last year when I was doing a project uh, on the Saturn V rocket. So you can still find a lot of really cool videos that show you uh, how it uh, breaks into the pieces like the controlled breaking apart as it as it goes. Mm -hmm. And a little uh, interesting curiosity from uh, from my rocket scientist brother about the Saturn V is you may have, if you can recall the image of the Saturn V, it has those uh, black and white markings on it, yes. right? Those big squares. There's actually a reason that those markings are on that rocket. And it's to allow the ground control crew to monitor the rate that the rocket is rotating. Because that's a very important part of kind of generating escape velocity and getting off the earth and keeping a rocket stable as it's, as it's sort of lifting off. So those, those black and white markings are there because you can kind of monitor the motion of it as it spins. It's, it's quite interesting. So there's your little, uh, there's your little neat science fact about the Saturn V, one of the most beautiful rockets ever, ever engineered. Thanks, Davis's brother. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I, yeah, he's a, a wealth of airplane and space information for sure. Um, we should have brought him on. 
<laughs> I did think about it. Uh, I did think about it, but we turned this one around one around pretty quick, so we I did. didn't didn't have a chance to reach out to him. That's okay. We're temporary experts. That's why you <laughs> came here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So so basically, this rocket um, deposited its you know its payload into low Earth orbit. So the module is now is now um, orbiting around the Earth, and then there was no. Um, plan basically uh, in place to bring this second stage rocket and uh, and it basically like it wasn't really supposed to get uh, it wasn't really supposed to end up in orbit really you know most of these second stages are so heavy that they fall back to earth after like a single orbit so for example again we're probably going to talk about the Saturn V a lot because it's the most famous example of this is like the Saturn V's like second first and second stages fell basically immediately right back to earth. the first stage falls before it's even in orbit so it just comes straight back down to earth it lands in the ocean this is why most launch sites are uh, are on the coast uh, rather than being inland, and that is because if anything goes wrong, you're basically launching over the ocean, and things are way more likely to just crash down into the ocean uh, and not potentially cause any harm to like habitated areas or things like that. The second stages of most of these rockets might exist in orbit for like a single orbit around the Earth or less than that, and then they fall back down to Earth. And again, when they only stay up for that length of time, basically is rocket engineers can make these better predictions about, okay, well, after a single orbit, it's going to come down in this area, and they can kind of more control it coming down in the oceans. It's also important to remember, right, that like hitting the ocean is much easier even than trying, even if you were trying to hit a populated area, that's difficult because like most of the earth, even the land mass on earth is unpopulated. And then on top of that, you know, 70% of the surface of the earth is water. So you're, you're, you're aiming for a pretty big target, but it doesn't really reduce the, the, um, the concern that objects falling from space sometimes creates in our, in our collective zeitgeist. Yeah. It's like, it's like a, if there's like a bad diagnosis, so you got to like throw out the numbers when it comes to the individual, right? And I feel like we all kind of carry that forward with stuff falling from space. Be like, I know the statistics tell me that it's not going to fall in a populated area, but if it could, that's concerning. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely, right? Uh, you know, and even to the point where it was it was still a pretty big news story here in Canada, but because of the uh, the the orbit that this object was in, it wasn't there was basically no chance that it was going to fall above a certain latitude or below a certain latitude. Although obviously in the southern hemisphere there's less land mass anyway, but it basically wasn't even possible for it to land even anywhere close to Canada's southernmost point. But again, yeah, our collective imaginations really run away when you when you when you yell that the sky is falling. Uh, <laughs> so basically what happened is this rocket started to garner a lot of international attention. It became very clear that it was in this uncontrolled descent. Uh, and basically no one had any idea when it was going to potentially re-enter the atmosphere. Uh, and this caused quite the little bit of a, a political debacle, didn't it? Yeah, there were, there were some barbs going back and forth between um, uh, particularly NASA and, and the uh, Chinese space agency. And uh, there were European concerns as well and about basically about like responsibility and you should like do better and try harder. But that's that's a bit more of a topic for uh, maybe more of a politically focused podcast than uh, <laughs> than our uh, one about more on the science. But it, it, it does tie into kind of like the, the fairness of country development and like why did these why did certain countries have the opportunity to like make these mistakes essentially and other countries don't have that opportunity they they're held to like the same modern standard 
But all of that. <laughs> and, and we'll talk a little bit about that uh, later in the podcast as well around some of the legislation, the international law that dictates how space is handled and sort of like what caused all this controversy and why, um, you know, why different, why certain space agencies were kind of deriding the, the Chinese space agency for what they did and China was kind of firing back. But yeah, we don't want to get too much into the politics of like kind of what's going on between all the various governments that were involved, but rather like what it is that, you know, it's sort of this best practice that China is sort of being accused of violating, but it's not, it's not dictated anywhere in this quote unquote international law. And then obviously, you know, as most of us probably are aware, like most international law is really difficult to enforce, right? There's no real enforcement body. Um, like the UN can, you know, do sanctions and things like that, but it's obviously very difficult even for, for the UN to kind of get to that stage. And then it's sort of doubled when you think about like, well, now you're way up in space. And there are, like you said, there's only a handful of countries that their space agencies or their space programs are developed to the point where they can kind of even enter that field. Um, and I think that's really well evidenced by, you know, what it was 10 years ago, there was that um, SpaceX, not SpaceX, sorry, there was that X prize to land a rover on the moon as a private company. And this was sort of before the advent of SpaceX and stuff like that. And that prize went unrewarded, because it basically revealed that it's, you know, without a government sort of backing you and funding this pro this this type of project, it's basically impossible to send a rover to to the moon. You know, they had to send a rover that was that only needed to travel like ten meters once it landed to the moon and send a signal back, and then you would win the X Prize. Uh, and a lot of you know a lot of these teams got very close, but fell short of actually launching a rocket. Like they designed rovers and things like that, but the cost and the political ramifications of trying to launch a rocket like that are just so extreme. Yeah, I feel I feel people are pretty they get they get pretty antsy when other countries start launching things. Uh, so it's a private company trying to launch things. I feel you'd have to go through so much government oversight anyway. And it just, it just makes me think when you're talking about international law, is international waters are like the, they're like the, the, the place that everyone knows where people go to do illegal things because they're, they're, they're international waters, right? There's no law. It's There's, like the sitcom trope. Exactly. It's yeah. in sitcoms. It's in cartoons. Like mm -hmm. it's in the Simpsons. I always remember. Yeah. And yeah. it was in Schitt's Creek. Like there's so many things. That it's just like, and then we were in international waters, and we all know what that means. So space is like that, but way bigger. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> and and even to the point where like maritime law or yeah, international waters and things like that is it, sort of really well established because there's this huge legacy of uh, water exploration and the use of you know waterways and things like that in the oceans on Earth. But there's just not that same history with space travel. I mean, there is, and that's sort of what's created some of the policies and some of the the treaties that people have signed. But uh, as as most people know about treaties, they become very difficult to enforce sometimes. Um, Especially when you're in space. Yeah, exactly. When no one can <laughs> hear you scream or cry foul. Now, yes. There you it's go. It's all about cooperation, like we talked about in our last space podcast. Mm -hmm. And if you don't work together, things get a lot harder. Yeah, absolutely right. And you end up double tapping and spending, you know, double the money to do certain things and stuff like that. But, yeah. you know, we digress a little bit. <laughs> As always, you're used to that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so, yeah, so we wanted to really like, you know, it was this Chinese rocket that got into the news and sort of got everybody thinking about this topic and was people were really excited is maybe the wrong word, but people were very um, nervous. Yeah, nervous is a good word, um, <laughs> you know, about what was going to potentially happen. And it just garnered a lot of attention. So we thought it was a really good opportunity for us to actually talk about 
the debris in space in general, right? And and why why NASA and the European Space Agency were sort of like, hey, look, like, you know, normally we kind of do this with our rockets. Like, we'd really like it if you did the same. And, and sort of how we've gotten to that point and why this is becoming such a big problem, especially as space starts to become more and more commercialized, which we'll talk a little bit about as well. So, so Sarah, tell, tell us a little bit about space junk, or as you like to call it, well, you and the scientists <laughs> like to call it orbital debris. Try right. saying that 10 times fast. Yes, it's, it, the words are fun to say, uh, orbital debris. But yeah, so a lot of the legacy of the space junk, all the stuff floating up there, is from the U.S. and Russia, which makes sense. They were with the space race uh, from the, the 60s and, and all through the 80s and so every time they launch something, there's usually something left behind. Mm-hmm. They're the longest standing space agencies. They're the ones that have been doing it the longest. So, of course, most of the space junk is going to be theirs. And especially because a lot of the junk that was created from those early missions was before we started to learn some of these lessons, basically. But yes. Yeah, because when you think about space, you think about it being a like unbelievably vast and there's no way that humans can make an impact on it. But that's mm-hmm. not true. It's like the classic, like, everybody always... Um, I don't want to say criticizes this scene in Star Wars because like Star Wars is really fantasy, but like the 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 scene where they fly through the asteroid field and and C-3PO is like there's a less than that was the worst Anthony Daniels impression ever. Um, (laughs) (laughs) He technically is right of first refusal for the character of C-3PO, so I could get in trouble for even trying to do an impression. That's a joke. That's not really true. He does have right of first refusal. Thanks, Um, Davis. You're welcome. Weird fact. (laughs) Weird pop culture fact of the day. Um, But yeah, where he's sort of like, there's a less than .0003 chance that we'll make it through. And Han Solo's like, never tell me the odds. Also a really bad Harrison Ford impression. Um, Got a roll. Yeah, I'm killing it today. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But yeah, like, you know, and and people always like kind of lambast that sequence because like an asteroid field is actually really diffuse. It's over hundreds of millions of miles. The likeliness of ramming your spaceship into one of those rocks is like super minimal. And then sometimes we apply that same logic to debris that orbits around the Earth. But in fact, it is the opposite. And now we're at this point where it is like flying through the Star Wars asteroid field. Or asteroid fields in, in any spacefaring show, like they're always a huge, huge danger. And they're like super jam-packed in together. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. if you end up in an asteroid field, like, oh boy, you're going to make it through because you're a main character. But <laughs> <laughs> you plot armor. Plot, plot armor 10 miles thick. Yeah. Thicker than an asteroid. Whoa. Oh dear. <laughs> uh, yeah, so up in space, orbiting around Earth, there are a lot of pieces, but about 900 of them are orbital rocket stages. So these would probably be bigger chunks, right, Davis? Yeah, so this is kind of like what we're talking about, right? Like what I was saying with like the Saturn V, right? Is some of these these rocket stages end up in, in low Earth orbit as space junk and things like that. And that's why it's become so important to to kind of clean up, like why, why there's some new conventions to how like space junk should be handled. And most of this stuff too is important to remember, right? Like the same physics that applies to like a meteor that falls to Earth Uh, and burns up largely in the atmosphere and then comes to Earth as a much smaller chunk. The same rules apply for space junk, right? And that's why some of it is not of great concern, especially even some of these rocket stages, because they're going to burn up. The problem comes is that, especially from something like with this Long March 5, that it has components in it that are designed for the rigors of space and and entry and re-entry and things like that. 
And so some of them are not going to burn up. And it's hard to tell, like, even to the point where, like, rocket fuel is a solid material and then spent rocket fuel has still these solid components to it and it's super dense and if it comes through the atmosphere it doesn't really burn up and it can it basically comes down like a giant paperweight and smacks into the ground and this is sort of what happened with Skylab was that some of the chunks that the big chunks that ended up falling and especially the ones that landed in Australia and on land were parts of the rocket, parts of the space station that were these really high, um, like melting point materials, these very durable materials, heavy metals, and not heavy metals, like elements of heavy metals, but heavy objects that didn't burn up and stayed in their big chunks. And that's obviously what poses like a huge risk in terms of objects falling to earth. Like we all know, well, like what happens if a, you know, average sized meteor hits the earth, you know? And so when you think about, we're basically creating that on our own, it becomes quite worrisome. Yeah, there's one, I, I forget which one it is, but there's one up there that's the size of, it's like a double-decker bus or a couple double-decker mm. buses up there. And that's like one of the ones of most concern because it's so big, <laughs> very big, very uh, concerning. And this is why, like we were saying, they want, if you have these heavy stages, they should fall back to Earth rather quickly because then you you can know their trajectory a lot more mm -hmm. and there are a lot of uh either smaller rockets or lighter upper stages that have a reignitable engine that can help force re-entry and kind of control it into falling where they want it to mm -hmm. right like picking that big ocean target yeah and this is the this is sort of the best the new best practice i mean new as of like the 1970s right but this is sort of what happened after nasa uh, after Skylab's re-entry sort of got a little botched to, to say just that. a little just a little bit you know it um, it's never it's, it's never any of these space agencies intention to to try to have any of this you know they're trying to minimize the impact of the things they're doing so they always want the rocket stages to land in the ocean and basically they're targeting an area that is as far away from land mass or populated land mass as possible it's a, there's a, there's a literal spot in the south pacific which is like mathematically the farthest point on earth from any habited land mass it's sort of like in between like india and australia and like the the other tip of asia and things like that and so there's this kind of area that has become like a rocketry graveyard and there's something like two 260 missions worth of deorbited wreckage that has ended up there because basically what nasa said after skylab was they went okay we got really lucky because this is we did not predict how this was basically going to unfold and we got very lucky that no one was hurt and that we didn't cause like massive property damage and as well we caused damage to a another sovereign country so it's not like you know oh this came down in the states and that's bad on its own it came down in a completely other country right and and there's huge political ramifications for that so nasa basically went we have to make sure that this never happens again and then over time with some of these treaties and just some of this better understanding of rocket technology and things like that is yeah what happened was then they started to put the engines as reignitable. So I, I know that seems sort of strange because sometimes you think, well, yeah, it's like an engine. You just start it and stop it and you start it again. But some of the older school rocket engines could not be reignited that way. Like they were literally meant to burn through all of the fuel that they had once. And then that was it. Kind of like a firework. Yes, exactly like a firework. Sweet. Or if you ever built rockets as a kid with those little, like the gunpowder tubes, essentially, mm. you light that tube 
and it's going up and it's going to go until it stops. And then, you know, you probably can launch your rocket again if you can if you can get it back down in one piece and then you can get another, you know, gunpowder tube essentially to launch it with. But it's not like that rocket would be sitting up in space and then all of a sudden there's like a little bit of extra gunpowder that didn't ignite and then you can reignite it. And again, you think about, it's not so simple to reignite something in space. What are you missing in space that you need for, for all ignition? Oxygen. <laughs> exactly. And, that, and that's even like, you know, we talked a little bit about this in the Mars podcast where rocket fuels are actually designed with their own oxidizers inside of them because of that reason, right? And anything you put on a rocket is weight. Right. And Another very good point. Weight is a huge problem with, you know, getting off of Earth and getting out of or, and fighting gravity. Mm -hmm. right? and, yeah. And it's not as, you know, it's, you know, compared to trying to go to Mars, it doesn't seem like as big of a problem. But you're actually kind of shooting for this like sliver of area where, you know, and, and trying to kind of get all your angles right and all your momentums right so that you can insert something into orbit and it's going to stay there in a fairly stable orbit for a really long period of time. And especially if you're trying to reach something else in space, like mm -hmm. you're trying to build a space station, you have a piece up there, or you're trying to get an astronaut to a space station. Mm -hmm. Like, you got to be pretty, pretty specific. And, and people sometimes forget that every object that's in Earth orbit is in somewhat of a decaying orbit, even though it may take thousands and thousands and thousands of revolutions around the earth to decay to the point where it's going to start falling to earth very rapidly, like in the way that this rocket happened. And this is why they didn't really know how long this rocket was potentially going to take to come back down to earth. They knew it was going to happen like in a certain, in the, you know, in the near future, so to speak, but they didn't know the specific day. And, and it's because all of these objects are sort of in these de decaying orbits. So the ISS has had to be kind of reorbited a handful of times where they kind of boost the orbit with some rocketry. Skylab, the goal was to keep boosting the orbit of Skylab, but that technology didn't come along as fast as the orbit of Skylab decayed. And basically they got to this point where they went, there's no saving this. We have to decommission it and send it back down to Earth. And when you say decay, you just mean instead of going in like a very a perfect circle, it's going in like a... A very, very slowly getting smaller spiral. Exactly. Okay. You, you you remember one of those, like, the coin donation things, and you would put it, and it would be like a big, yeah, a big funnel. funnel. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you would put something on it, and it would just get, you know, spin around, 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 and then eventually it would fall in. It's exactly that concept. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, like we said, there's about 900, 900 pieces of rocket. Lar yeah, of rocket. Mm -hmm. Floating up in space. But there are more than half a million pieces, over 500,000 pieces of debris in space at various altitudes uh, that are the size of a marble or larger. And these can get, uh, there's about 20,000 of these pieces are about the size of a softball and millions of them are, them are too small to track. Um, one of my favorite ones that they've talked about, uh, they, they talked about a fair bit in the research of this was paint flecks, like little specks of paint that come off of things uh, can damage spacecrafts because they're going really, really fast. It's not just like when a paper ba or a plastic bag on earth is getting blown around and you're like, oh, that's kind of annoying. No, no. These are going up to 17,500 miles per hour, which is real fast. And they can damage space stations and other satellites. We've seen the movie Gravity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was waiting yeah. for when we were going to get to this, <laughs> this particular example. <laughs> yeah, just, just one little piece of space debris coming out of nowhere. And it can, you know, we talked in the Mars podcast about anything in space can ruin your day. And this is absolutely true. And there's over 500,000 
things in space that can ruin your day of different sizes, even these tiny, tiny paint flecks. Um, and actually, a lot of space shuttle windows have had to be replaced because of damage caused by material that was analyzed and then shown to be paint flecks, uh, which is also makes it clear that, I mean, we have these really big pieces floating in space, and that's really bad, because, like, a little fleck coming along and, like, it might bump a window. If it hits an astronaut in a suit, that's when it's really damaging because any hole or any puncture is, you know, pretty bad in space. But the big pieces, like if a big piece flew around and hit the space station, it's going to do a lot more damage. But we can't just go up and like explode it and make it small pieces because then instead of having one big thing that we can track and we can monitor and know where it is and, and hopefully capture it better, we could end up with thousands of little pieces that we really have no way of tracking and controlling and monitoring. And then they're just flying around up there, causing havoc. Mm -hmm. And 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 that's the interesting thing about this is that the problem with space junk and potential collisions has gotten so um, prolific now that NASA has all these internal guidelines and all this protocol for dealing with potential impacts. And they're tracking all these objects and they have to try to kind of avoid these various objects as they insert and take things in and out of space. And, uh, you know, just like Sarah said, right, like, these big objects are, you're, you know, you we worry about the big objects because they can cause the most damage in one single go, but they're the easiest to track. So they're honestly not even really the ones that you're most concerned of. And it is really these small objects that become this big concern because there's effects that, you know, a single piece of one of these small pieces of debris can actually cause these like cascading issues. So we were talking about that scene in Gravity and it seems like this sort of sequence out of science fiction. But it's actually a real postulated phenomenon that could happen, obviously has not happened to this point because you would have heard about it. Um, and it's called the Kessler syndrome. And it's the idea that as the density of space rubbish continues to increase, that there's the possibility that a runaway cycle of debris generating collisions could arise and that it would basically make low Earth orbit impossible or too hazardous to support most space activities. So that scene in uh, gravity, and I don't really remember what kicks it off, but essentially it's like, I think it is a small piece of debris hits like a satellite and it breaks the satellite up and all of those pieces of the satellite start to catch other pieces of debris that are in similar you know, spaces of low Earth orbit. And then it starts to just hurtle around the planet. And it basically comes back around to this mission on the space station that, you know, the subject of the movie is or whatever. And it just like obliterates the entire International Space Station in a single go. And the whole tension of the movie basically is that like, every, you know, 45 minutes or something, this wave of this tidal wave of debris is coming back around and the various astronauts like have to kind of like escape back to Earth as quickly as they can. Yeah, because if you remember in space, there's no air, so there's no air to stop anything, right? So like if you were in space and you had, I don't know, a paper airplane and you you threw it, it would go in that trajectory forever, mm -hmm. like literally forever, unless it got caught in the orbit of a planet. And then it would just travel around that planet for a long, long time, right? Mm -hmm. So this is what happens if you have a space, a, a debris in space hits another piece of debris and then it bumps it into the same direction. So they all start going in the same direction. And think about the materials we use to make stuff in space. It's a lot of metal. Mm -hmm. And what happens when metal breaks? It tends to turn into shards, which are very sharp and very dangerous. So then, yeah, you can just have these like these screens, basically, of sharp metal things floating around and, and 
very going very very quickly as we said mm -hmm. and you know sometimes we think you know to go back a little bit to those small specs and things like that and you sort of think well what kind of force can one of these things generate right so force is mass times acceleration so yeah if you have something of really really low mass you know you kind of you're you're taking away a little bit of the potential force but you know we're talking about something that's traveling at you know, 17,000 miles per hour. I'm sorry I didn't convert that into kilometers. Um, you know, and and then hitting an object and kind of coming to a stop. And basically when, like Sarah said, you know, there's no friction that's been slowing it down at all before. So now there's all this deceleration happening at the exact same time. You're going from 17,000 miles per hour to zero miles per hour as you hit this object. And all of that force, all of that acceleration is then being transferred into force. So, you know, even though you have this very, very tiny object, now you have this huge amount of acceleration, you know, negative acceleration. And then on top of that as well, as force is amplified when you apply it over smaller and smaller surface areas as well, right? That's what makes something like um, like a bullet so dangerous. I really wish I hadn't picked that example, but like- uh, or, or if you have- you. <laughs> <laughs> So it's, this is the idea that I always grew up with. I grew up in, uh, in Ontario near Toronto. So the idea of like, you could take a penny like, if I threw a penny at Davis right now, sitting beside him, I wouldn't do a lot of damage. He'd be concerned and probably wonder why I threw a penny at him, but I'm not going to hurt him with it. But if I stood at the top of the CN Tower, and Davis was at the bottom of the CN Tower, and I dropped a penny, there's always this rumor that it would, like, go through your skull and kill you. I don't think... I think the science bears out that it wouldn't do that. Yeah, the Mythbusters um, did a test of it, and, like... You know, where, where basically, like, uh, Adam Savage was able to, like, put his... They basically, like, rigged up a nail gun to launch a penny downwards with the same amount of force that it would get if you dropped it off, like, the Empire State mm -hmm. Building was the example they used. And that's partly because an object on Earth is going to reach terminal velocity as it's falling through the air. So the penny right. actually can't get beyond a certain speed because right. the air resistance is going to be pushing back on it. Right, because air pushes up as mm -hmm. the penny falls down. But it would still hurt Davis yes. more if yes. I threw a penny at him from the top of the CN Tower versus while sitting here beside him. Mm -hmm. So it's the same sort of thing in space. And imagine it wasn't a penny. It was like, you know, a shard of metal <laughs> that I threw at Davis. And if I could take away all of the air pressure coming up, then it would really, really mess up Davis's day. Don't worry, Davis. I won't I won't become a mad scientist and <laughs> yeah. do that to you. Please don't drop things from space. Although, I mean... <laughs> That does start to get into, th this is, um, it's a bit of a science fiction-y concept, but it is sort of one of these big concerns about the militarization of space. Yes. Is that, like, you, you may have heard of this idea of, like, a kinetic strike. It's been featured in some, like, pulp movies and things like that. Like, um, nothing really necessarily worth watching. But uh, I have not heard of this. What is this, Davis? <laughs> well, basically, it's the idea that you could, basically, in space, you could put a satellite where inside of the satellite are basically these giant, usually it's talked about like they would be tungsten because tungsten is incredibly dense metal and it doesn't have, it has a super high melting point and things like that. Tungsten is the metal you find in incandescent light bulbs. Yes, yeah. Uh, it is the elemental symbol W. Why? I, I can't remember exactly why. <laughs> I think it also, it has to do partly with because like T was already taken oh, um, by some other things. Anyway. Anyway. <laughs> the, then you get into the history of the periodic table, which is also in and of itself it's a very cool. interesting int uh, history. Yeah. And a still evolving history, actually. Oh. But yeah, so usually like they talk about these, basically, um, it would be like a grain silo of like solid tungsten and that you could drop it from orbit. So we're not even really talking about like rocket power. We're literally just talking about, look, you're at this point in orbit and this object is so heavy that you literally just like release it from space and you drop it to earth, just like dropping the penny off of the Empire State Building or the CN Tower. And that this object falling from space 
is so heavy that, you know, one, it's going to pick up all this momentum before it hits the atmosphere. But then two, it's designed in such a way that it's minimizing its interaction with the air and the atmosphere. And it's so heavy that it would hit the earth with the force of like several thermonuclear bombs. Oh, goodness. And it wouldn't be. And then even to the point where like it's really popular in science fiction because like, you, you know, you get around this this problem of, of nuclear fallout, right, from a weapon of that oh. of that kind of yield. But it's basically like this this doomsday scenario of like we would start dropping objects from low earth orbit and we'd be like blowing up entire cities with like no effort because you can just like literally just like drop these giant bullets of tungsten from space uh that's so upsetting to think about (laughs) yeah and, and that's why again like why this conversation of of like international law that dictates space and what you can put up there and what you're allowed to do and what you're not allowed to do uh, is so important. And to reassure the listeners out there, you know, the oldest treaties that we have for space exploration lay out very clearly that like you are not supposed to put any weapons of mass destruction in space and you should, and you're not allowed to do any nuclear testing in space. Like nuclear testing in space has been outlawed since the sixties. I mean, even to the point now where most nuclear testing is outlawed because we don't really want people testing nuclear bombs. We don't need more of them. Yeah, we, we know a lot about them. We only need point. less of them. Yes. Yeah. Is, is, that's my hot take. That's not my not so hot take. <laughs> yeah, but with these uh, this idea that like you can't put this weaponry up in space, but it can be easily exploited is the concern with, one, sending satellites is, is a general concern, but also with any idea of how to start collecting and, and cleaning up this space junk. Mm. There's, because anything that can be used in that capacity, can also potentially have anti-satellite effects. Yeah, and this is, that's an interesting part of this, right, is that, you know, we, warfare in space, the militarization of space is starting to become this bit bit of this unavoidable problem. Space force. Yeah, well. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, we laugh, like, you know, if you've seen the Netflix show Space Force, which was obviously a lampoon on uh, a certain ex-US president's... um, Space Force. Space Force. Uh, (laughs) There's some funny stories about that, too. But, uh, yeah, this militarization of space is becoming really unavoidable, and maybe not even so much in this, like, you know, Marines on the moon kind of sense, but more even so in just like, yeah, the counterintelligence aspect of space, you know, like you put a satellite in space with a camera on it, you can see the entire earth that's got some huge ramifications for it, right? Think about how creeped out you were the first time you were able to look at your house on Google Earth or or how cool you thought it was, right? It was kind of both. I think it depended if you were in the picture or not, Mm -hmm. because that's Mm -hmm. always freaky if people go along and then they found like people and, and not just like the people who got stitched together by different pictures and ended up in like some weird, uh, it's like when you take a panorama. Yeah, they're all like up. stretched yeah. out or something like that. Mm-hmm. That's now a popular uh, filter thing, I think, on TikTok. There's like this, people, it, it, it goes, sorry, this tangent, it goes like across the screen. So people will do like, uh, it either oh, goes like yeah. across or goes mm. uh, from top to bottom. So they can, it, they can make it look like they're holding someone's head because they duck out of the way or like they have like a really long face. It's pretty funny. Um, <laughs> but anyway... <laughs> Yeah, so there's there's lots of concerns with uh, people being in space and just the access to information that you have up there. Mm-hmm. Um, but just to just to take a brief uh, fun tangent here uh, with the uh, before we go into like a lot more into the the commercialization of space and things like that. So there are people looking at trying to deal with the space junk and clean it up in in very much the same way that. There's uh, people out there looking at how do we clean up ocean plastic and things like that. And I guess now also ocean space debris 
because there's a lot of that, and who knows what effect that's having on our, our uh, ocean-dwelling friends, but mm-hmm. that's a different topic. Uh, so yeah, so they're, they're trying to figure out how to collect things in space, and there's no one-size-fits-all solution, though, because you got big things, you got little things, you have different materials, they're moving at different speeds, you can track them, you can't, so you need different solutions. Um, but some of these uh, ideas made me laugh. They're just so sci-fi, but they're legit things that they've either uh, tried or are thinking about. There are nets, laser blasts, harpoons, giant foam balls, puffs of air, tethers, and solar sails, as well as garbage gathering robotic arms and tentacles. I love how in <laughs> in like the innovation in space, because like you are, you're pushing the frontier of human technology. Yeah. And, and there's so many technologies that we take for granted now that we wouldn't have without the space programs of like the 60s and the 70s, especially. And it's but it's so funny that in order to think on that edge of like human technology, you have to kind of get a little outlandish. You have to sort of propose these ridiculous things. Like, again, we were talking about in the Mars podcast about how there were literally rovers that were dropped on the surface of Mars in like an airbag. And that was the best, not the best they could come up with, but it was, it was like, it was the most elegant solution they could come up with. But that's not necessarily the elegant solution you're going to think of when you think about elegance. But in order to kind of push that frontier forward, you have to think on the order of ridiculousness and then come back. Like you can't restrict yourself to what makes sense based on what you already know. Absolutely. I mean, even thing like in the forties, the idea of going to the moon was ridiculous. Right. So there, there's always this element of, of ridiculous in, in the forefront of technology. But that's where like scientists who work at the forefront of science have to be immensely creative. Right. Because you're doing something no one has done before. Right. When when light was when they were trying to figure out what light was and they broke it into a rainbow it was Newton. Right. Yep. yep yeah. Right. And when Newton broke it into a rainbow, he had to be super creative to think of, like, how can I bend and break light? Which is like what is still an absurd thing to think about, right? So anyone working on the forefront of science and technology has to be thinking in this very creative sci-fi kind of way. And if you look at sci-fi uh, inventions, they've actually influenced actual science as well, right? Like the my favorite is Star Trek. Yeah. There's a number of things like the tricorder in Star Trek. People are, there's not like a really effective one, but they're working on it where they can like scan you and find out your illnesses. And then the the communicator, early idea for cell phone, mm-hmm. right? Which is so cool. Even even the the automatic door. <laughs> the automatic door is sort of it didn't exist when Star Trek first came out, which we sometimes forget about. Because yeah, it was uh, we it was in the modern era. Yeah, but it was like two stagehands basically who had to pull the door apart. Yeah, and then put it back together. <laughs> so you can find these clips of old Star Trek episodes where like Kirk walks up to the door and there's this second delay before the door opens because the stagehands are like trying to get there and pull the door open, or like one side will open faster than the other side. <laughs> But yeah, you know, it's this classic, like, art imitates life, life imitates art, and, and yeah, and just like, just like we're sort of saying, right, is you have to, you have to go beyond the confines of creativity, you know, of normal creative, what you're restricted to normally. And, it, and, you, and that's how you come up with these, like, super, super intera- interesting things. And, I mean, who knows? Maybe a giant foam ball floating through space is the right choice, because it could float around and stuff flying through space would just get stuck in it. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, but I love that you brought up the uh, the comparison to you know microplastics and plastics in the ocean mm-hmm. because it, it is it's very you know in the ocean there's a lot of similar there's a lot of these similar problems that you have to kind of get over in order to create a piece of technology that can just scour the oceans this huge amount of space and and collect all these plastics especially when a lot of these plastics do end up in like the deep ocean and stuff like that and they most of the plastics in the ocean like if you think of the great pacific garbage patch it's mostly micro and nanoplastics which are uh microplastics are 
0.5 to 0.05 or 0.005 centimeters small. And the nanoplastics are smaller than that and very, very, very little. And that's what a lot of the stuff is in space, right? So you can't just put a net up there. Most of your stuff that's flying around is going to go through the net. So how do you catch it without it puncturing and going through your net anyway? <laughs> mm -hmm. And, you know, obviously now we kind of, we deal, we have this legacy of space flight that we can't really do anything about that has created this, this problem of space junk. But a lot of what, you know, a lot of the forward thinkers or these, these people that are involved in space exploration today, what they talk about, right, is that like, and this is sort of the same thing that people talk about in terms of conservation everywhere, right, is that it is much easier to just not make a mess than to try to go back and clean up your mess later. Yeah. And so that's why there's this increasing amount of sort of best practice that is dictating like, hey, if you're going to put something up in space, you should do these things. Uh, you know, and, and obviously why like why SpaceX has sort of captured so many people's imaginations with this idea of the reusable rocket, because obviously that's coming from the legacy of the space shuttle or the idea to create this reusable vehicle. But obviously the, the stages of the of the shuttle, the fuel tanks and the boosters were not super reusable, not in the same way. And now, you know, now that we've kind of moved away from the shuttle model because it had, it, you know, it had its issues as well you know, now we're kind of back onto these booster rockets and things like that. There's this, you know, there's a lot of interest in creating a reusable rocket. And in, even in terms of the fact that like you can turn around missions way faster, if your rocket comes back down to earth, you fill it up like your, you know, your Prius or whatever, and then you launch it back up into space. And it would save money for a company in the long run as well, because you don't have to build the whole rocket again, right? Like mm -hmm. you have to, you have to, it's more of a cost up front to get a rocket that you can have reusable but then, yeah, you can reuse it. It's the same with any reusable product, right? Like if you're going to, instead of buying sandwich baggies every week, if you buy reusable like silicone baggies, then is it more of a cost up front? Absolutely. But in the end, you're going to save money because you're only going to have to buy it once as opposed to buying and replacing something every single time. And actually, so it ties into environmental things. It also ties into our uh, ECE podcast last week, the Early Childhood Education. It's like, it's much easier to do brain circuitry right the first time than trying to fix it later. And it's the same model here. And it's the same with like, why would you produce something like with plastics that would, that are single use that you don't have a way to really recapture when you could just produce them better or produce them in a more sustainable way and produce them to be more like robust and last longer and have fewer health uh, effects on humans in the first place. Right. Like it, it really becomes an engineering and a front end problem because we, we can see like there's a video maybe we can post to our Twitter that really shows you this proliferation of space junk through the decades. And it is absurd when you look at it and you see all of these little dots circling the Earth. I just imagine like what Earth must look like to an alien. Like if an alien was coming by, they would absolutely know this planet was inhabited because they'd be like, what are <laughs> this is the only planet in the solar system that looks like that? Because it's not a bunch of moons, you know? It's a bunch of junk. <laughs> it's just a bunch of stuff. <laughs> like, hmm, who lives there? They're not They're not keeping their, their space yard very clean. We're going to get a note from the, uh, the, the Space Homeowners Association. <laughs> but our lawn. And I think that that's sort of one of the interesting things that this, the, this whole debacle with the Chinese rocket has, has um, pushed to the forefront is that there were all these sites that 
you know, that are always tracking space junk. And then we're specifically tracking the decaying orbit of this rocket so people could kind of start to take a look at, you know, what was happening to it, where it was, when it was going to potentially re-enter. And it shows, you can look at some of these sites and it really, it shows you these maps of how much space junk is out there, how much of this orbital, orbital debris is just hanging around at all these different altitudes from Earth. Uh, and there's just so much of it. Uh, you know, you can just, you can really see this, you know, it's just a cloud of like all these white dots on an image uh, yeah. around the earth. It reminds me a little bit actually of, um, this is something Sarah and I know quite well, but if you're familiar a little bit with deeper space sort of coming out to the very edge of our solar system is the earth's, uh, sorry, not the earth, the sun's sphere of gravitational influence is called the heliosphere. And at the very edge of the heliosphere, there's this massive cloud of objects called the Oort cloud, Double O-R-T, named after Juan Ort, who kind of discovered it, or he postulated it originally. Jan Ort. Jan Ort. Sorry. I apologize <laughs> to all of our Dutch friends out there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, if you look at a computer-generated image of what the Oort cloud is, like, believed to look like, and it's basically the source of comets in this solar system. Like a bunch of rocks and ice floating at the very, very edges of the sun's gravitational pull. Mm-hmm. And it is, you know, so you zoom out from it and it looks like this just giant cloud of like white dots. Yeah. And when you, when you look at the images of space junk around the earth, it, it looks very similar. I don't know. I just, there's something that struck me when I started looking at, into some of this stuff for this topic. And I think it's important to note that it's, there's a lot of junk up there, but there's also the things that we have up there that we need up there, like, like the space station and satellites. Yeah, right. lots and lots of satellites up in space, you, you know, and, and it, you, it's easy to forget, right? You can think yeah. about kind of the major ones, uh, you know, the GPS networks, the, you know, the Hubble telescope, you know, some of these ones that, you know, maybe were even the growing Starlink, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. But yeah, there's just every government on Earth has satellites up there, pretty much. Yeah, which becomes a bit of a, just like a fair access, a fair access human rights issue, because... Why do only some nations get satellites? Because as we've talked about, like, you really need to share space data, but they're obviously not going to share all of it because you end up with these these uh, concerns of national security and, and all of these things. But then that means that other nations are going to go, okay, well, you're not going to give us the benefit of your satellite, so we have to send up our own, which means that there's more stuff up in space. It's sort of ironic, too, because, you know, the the atmosphere around using satellites to cooperate on another planet is much stronger than it is here on Earth, right? So you, we were talking about in the Mars podcast yeah. that there's, you know, there's four or five missions that were all launched in this same launch window um, that allowed, you know, Perseverance to get to Mars and things like that. And there's a, there is a Chinese mission, which was also launched with a Long March 5B. It was obviously, it, it didn't end up in this decaying orbit. It, it sort of fell as it was originally supposed to. So it didn't garner this same attention at the time. But you've got these, you know, these large, you know, you've got these different missions that have satellites now in orbit around Mars and they're sharing information and the, the agreements or the willingness to share that information about Mars is way, way greater than a bunch of countries here on Earth sort of going like, of course you can have my satellite data that has like, all of these images of my vulnerable infrastructure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we've got we've got some satellites up there that are more of our governmental ones, right? That we uh we not we don't want to share data from. But there's also an increasing commercial satellite presence up there, primarily with SpaceX's SpaceLink. 
Starlink? Starlink? Starlink. It's in here somewhere. Yeah, satellite link, Starlink. I believe it's Starlink. Uh... Yeah, so it's like the SpaceX's program of Starlink, which is to bring... uh, The idea is to put up a bunch of satellites, up to 40,000 satellites in coming years. As of March 2021, they had uh, just over 1,100 satellites up there, and their idea is to put them around uh, 300 miles above the surface, so uh, like a lower Earth orbit, and this is for internet in rural rural and less populated areas that uh, might have really, really poor internet speeds from regular regular internet providers. And so they've, they've developed this Starlink system, which like makes sense and it ties into, I think during COVID we've really seen that access to internet is much less of a luxury and it's becoming much more of a human right in that if you had access to really good internet, then you could work from home. And if you didn't, then you were, you could be really, really hamstrung in your, in your job prospects. So this idea of bringing internet to rural homes, and there are, there are a number of reviews at this point, because it's, uh, it's in over 30 US states and uh, seven provinces in Canada. It's also being brought to UK, Germany, and New Zealand. And it is providing higher speed, reliable internet to these people who say that it's actually working really well. And it, it can really like, change how you interact with a lot of things. I have a friend who lives in uh, on a, in a farm in Sarnia in Ontario and her internet is like, we can't do video calls because her internet can't handle it. So if she was able to get this, then it could really help her be a lot more connected when she's in these um, more rural areas. But is this a short-sighted gain? You know, sending up this many more satellites, like taking up this much more space in space, uh, is it a short-sighted gain if our opportunities to explore space or look out for danger coming from space are hampered by all by, by these 40,000 extra things flying around the earth. And you know, the, it is, it's one of these questions of like, you know, we can do it, but should we do it? Um, I mean, I would, I would definitely <laughs> fall on the side a little bit with, with like we were talking about, like you were saying, internet and access to the internet is really really at this point in time it is it's a basic human right you know you you've seen the the power of the internet you know with some of the the revolutions during the arab spring and things like that some of the things that are happening now um you know uh social media and the internet is a hugely powerful tool both by governments that want to restrict people doing certain things and by citizens who are kind of trying to organize themselves and things like that and it's becoming so so much more important to have internet access that is not controlled by governments or by countries and can kind of be or or even just like solely controlled by certain private enterprises and can really be is accessible to everyone and sometimes what you may forget about internet infrastructure is that like because now we've gotten so used to like wi-fi and things like that that you think like oh well the internet is in the air it's all around us it's being it's all these signals being sent and beyond wi-fi like uh if you don't have wi-fi you can still access the internet right like on your phone yeah like through through 5g they're controlling our brains but yeah (laughs) you know and that's a cellular signal but most internet infrastructure it requires like physical infrastructure it requires a physical cable to be laid in the ground and network all of these homes and these houses together and different businesses and things like that right and it becomes quite expensive to do these things and that's why some of these rural areas have really lagged behind other more developed areas you know cities and things like that where okay, well, there's a big sewage system, so we just run the internet cable through the existing system where all the power lines and everything are already. And, you know, and then maybe every few years we have to dig up a couple neighborhoods to put down better fiber or whatever it might be. But, you know, you go way out into, you know, you think about 
and especially for us here in Canada, there's huge swaths of rural land where yeah. there's very, very little population in some of these areas or where there is population, it's very spread out still. Uh, you know, putting that infrastructure in is, is prohibitively expensive for like a country. And then so when a company like SpaceX just sort of goes like, well, we're going to put 40,000 satellites in space. And then if people want to pay for internet from Starlink, they can. You sort of go, okay, great. Now we don't have to build this infrastructure in the same way. Yeah, I I agree. I think it it because it really it makes the internet a lot more accessible for people and a lot more I think I read it was like 99 bucks a month after after there was an initial charge of like 4 or 500 dollars for the satellite dish and mm-hmm. something um but then it was like 99 bucks a month which is it can be like double what you can pay for regular internet but it can also be pretty standard like pretty much what you pay for internet <laughs> so someone paying Similar prices for internet on Earth if you look if if you live in Canada you know this struggle well yeah (laughs) but this also kind of leads into kind of one of the concerns about this technology is that like so in Canada the reason I'm using this segue is we have kind of they call them the big three and there's sort of three major telecom companies in Canada and that's everything to do with you know phone and internet and stuff like that but they really have um, like a stranglehold on the market yeah I was was looking for the the O word whatever was the not oligarchy, yeah. but uh, <laughs> so I thought too. I was like, "That's not right." Yeah, it, it, it's 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 from that same etymology. But anyway, um, you know, yeah, they really have a stranglehold on the market, and they dictate the prices. So in Canada, we pay some of the highest prices in you know the quote unquote developed world uh, for internet and and phone plans and phone plans. Yes, thank you. And that's why something like Starlink is so attractive to people, even at $99 a month. Because if you live in a rural area, you're probably paying close to that amount for internet anyway. And then your internet is, as Sarah said, crap, and you can't do very much on it. So, you know, oh, okay, I shell out a few extra bucks for a satellite dish, but now I've got two or three times the speed and, you know, maybe unlimited data or whatever. I don't really understand. I don't know how the business model of Starlink works. I haven't looked into buying one right now it is unlimited uh they're still at a very early stage though so there's (laughs) concerns over what happens later right and this is this is a concern that i have whenever you have a corporation controlling something and there's especially when there's not a lot of regulation because the industry is is really forging ahead where laws and things are is that if you have one company who controls these forty thousand satellites if they want to double the price one month what is to stop them other than like hoping they're good ethical people running the company. And in my in my experience, people who tend to run really, really giant companies are not the most ethical for the little guy, you know? So, so I definitely, I think this is great to help a lot more people get internet access and be able to kind of keep up with, with the ever-increasing pace of life. But I think there needs to be some regulation around the company and some sort of restriction on the their ability to increase the price uh just to increase their profits and things like that you know you know it's one of those things where increasingly a project like this is way more in the public interest uh but the uh, you know and as we kind of talked about in the mars podcast but to kind of reiterate it is that one of the greatest issues with space exploration has always been getting you know public opinion behind the publicly funded aspect of it to be very strong in favor of and you know it's sort of like we've seen 
what we're seeing now, um, and I'll just talk about the U.S. obviously because like NASA is the big example, but with the new administration in the U.S., there is a much greater attention being placed on on increasing the funding that NASA has to allow them to do some of these things. But if you're SpaceX, it's easy to just say, okay, well, we'll take our millions in government subsidies and all this other stuff and we'll just start putting stuff up in space and we'll see if this is viable or not. Uh, you know, the in some ways the risk is is less and more it's it's one of those weird things right because it's like they have they have less risk in the sense that like they're not a government so they don't have a bunch of constituents to make happy and and a bunch of other areas where they need to spend their money also much higher risk because like they're a private business for the most part and if their enterprise fails well then that's sunk cost they've lost all this money you know and some and that's again this whole thing with space and and many different human endeavors right is that i think like we talked about with ece is there are certain things and best practices or things that we need to have as a society that aren't profitable things they need but they need to be done anyway like the post office needs to run the post office is never really going to be a huge money maker for a government but you need to have a national post service otherwise it can cause all these these problems really yeah and and that's a it's actually watching uh, a new documentary series about money on on Netflix and was talking about credit cards and how like credit cards really have allowed people to like make a big purchase in one go that they may not have been able to otherwise right um, and there are times when having a credit card means that you can you can survive for a month or two if you lost your job you got sick or something like that but because the credit card companies were set up as like a way to make money and not as a public good service there, there are huge, huge issues with it, with with interest, and there were some regulations put on them. But then they got they got rolled back, and they became credit cards went from being like a really fee based driver of revenue to interest driver, like interest really drives our revenue, which is where you get into issues around your private companies versus government and versus government regulation. And if your private company gets big enough, guess what? They have lots and lots of money to lobby, which is a problem. Mm-hmm. We're talking about space, a place where like ninety nine point I don't know eight percent of humanity has no ability to get to or in- interact with like an- at all, right? And this is where this conversation into this you know we've been talking about it a little bit already, but this the commercialization of space, which is something I think if you had asked someone in the nineties. They would be like, well, that's science fiction. You know, oh, they're going to put a billboard in space. They're going to, you know, they're going to be running, you know, companies are going to be launching rockets. Like it would have seemed um, impossible to have anybody other than a huge government entity like NASA or the Russian Space Federation. Uh, I don't think that's the Russian Space Agency, you know, launch anything into space. It was just it was just insane to think about, you know, and uh, and now we're at this point where you have companies like. SpaceX, obviously, you have uh, Blue Horizon, you have, um, oh, I cannot remember the third one. There's another major one in in, uh, in the States. And they're starting to sell tickets for recreational spaceflight, essentially, or commercial spaceflight, I guess you would call it really, where they're selling, you know, these tickets for people to go up into low Earth orbit, like an astronaut in basically what is like a luxury jetliner for space, essentially. Money, money seems to have shifted a little bit, you know, just a little bit away from governments and the people and into the pockets of private companies. And so those are the people that, like we said, space exploration is super expensive. So these people with massive amounts of money and these corporations with massive amounts of money are the ones capable of doing this, but they also need to keep money flowing in. So who are they going to look to? They're going to look to the other really rich people to say like, 
pay us for this, but the rich people won't donate in to the program they want a service for it, right? They want a good for it. And so that's where travel comes in. But it also makes space flight ridiculously exclusive, you know? Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's it, it, technologically this part of space flight, you know, like the, yeah, the commercial luxury flight into space is at a stage in its technological development where it is going to be prohibitively expensive for anyone, but like the multi-billionaires that are out there, the few of them, you know, and, but the problem with this comes in a little bit of that, like, well, what happens when you've got a company that wants to put with that has billions and billions and billions of dollars, that's hundred hundred billion dollar multinational, and they want to put a billboard in space. Uh, there was a story, I think it was four or five years ago now, where like Coca-Cola, I think it was, or Pepsi or something. I mean, they're the same. <laughs> they wanted to put, there was this joke that they want, or not joke, there was a story that they were tossing around this idea of putting a billboard into space. And it was something like, it was going to have a, I think it was going to have the square footage of like a hundred square kilometers or something ridiculous like that. Why? No one's going to see it. No, because everyone would see it because it'd be in this low earth orbit oh. and you would basically like see it all of the time. That's horrible. And I it would it. like come around the earth every so often. I don't remember all the super specifics about the story. And I think Ugh. even to the point where it was sort of like, I think some scientists came about and were like, well, it, it would be infeasible to have something this large in space. <laughs> it would just get destroyed so quickly and things like that. From all those tiny little things floating around. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but there, there is this, you know, there's, there's, there's thought. And I guarantee you that there are, you know, weird project groups and some of these hundred billion dollar multinationals where they're talking about like, well, what if we could put an advertisement on the moon? What if we could put an advertisement in space, right? You know, you pay, how much does a Super Bowl halftime, a Super Bowl 30 second spot is like, well, I think this year it was like $10 million or oh something gosh. ridiculous like that for 30 seconds of the Super Bowl. You know, because of all the eyes you can reach, because it's such a big, it's such a viewed um, event every year. So imagine then that you could just pop something up into space. Now it's being seen by billions of eyes without them having really any choice whether to see it or not, because it's flying through their sky. And, you know, now you're advertising Coke to, you know, every living soul on the planet. Or beyond that, if they're not looking at advertising, there's, uh, I feel like the next thing in space is asteroid mining. So uh, if you can get to an asteroid and you can get incredibly rare metals on Earth often, uh, and mm-hmm. just just the size of asteroids and the amount that you could mine them and that you could take out of them and bring back to Earth, what gives a corporation the right to gather those materials and sell them back to the highest bidder, essentially, right? Which is what they would do. And they could uh, use a justification of, well, it took a lot of money to get there. So we need this to support it, but it could, it could really expand out the wealth gap that we're already seeing. I mean, I just always think of things like Star Wars or you've got like Battlestar, anything with like a giant spaceship with hundreds of people on it. How expensive would those be to make, you know? And I always think of Star Wars just because then they had like hundreds of Star Destroyers and you're like, oh my God, how much did you have to spend to do that? Where did you get the raw materials from? Maybe from asteroids. And then it just, it really becomes this, uh, this like spirally little rabbit hole when you start to think about space exploration and space exploitation, mm. which not everyone and very, very few people, in fact, have access to. It's interesting because like the the exploitation of space, it is going to become it actually is going to become important that we're able to mine asteroids in the, in the near future. Uh, a good example of one of these rare earth elements that is in really, really short supply on earth, but is used in certain technologies is iridium. 
Iridium is an element that actually all of the iridium on Earth, it's something like it makes up like 0.000003 or something of that order percent of the Earth's crust. All of the iridium on Earth is from space. So it's all from meteorites crashing into the Earth. Well, sorry, when they crash into the Earth, they're meteoroids. <laughs> uh, no, wait, sorry. Meteoroids are in space. Meteors are when they're entering. Meteorites are when they're on Earth. There you go, grade seven science students. Um, knowledge. Yeah, <laughs> knowledge <laughs> is power. But yeah, so the uh, the only way to get more of this material is to go out into space and mine it. And iridium is used in a lot of like high tech applications. Mm. And as we continue, and this is why like, you know, going off topic a little bit, but like we, we talk a lot about like e-waste now and the importance that of e-cycling and even... You might have heard about it over the past year, especially, but there is like a, there is all these massive shortages for certain types of computer components around the world because some of these elements are starting to get rarer and rarer. And then obviously all the service disruptions from COVID. And then there's another angle to this issue with if you're someone who follows the whole like GPU market, which is often for gaming, but has now been co-opted by people who are doing cryptocurrency. Another topic for another day, actually, you know, we could talk about crypto cryptocurrency for hours because it's so complicated and it's so poorly understood. But they're they're already we are starting to see these um, these supply crunches for certain types of material. Uh, In fact, actually, all across uh, the world right now, and this is really uh, endemic. Uh, there's a bit of an epidemic of this in in North America, people stealing catalytic converters from cars. So your catalytic converter is a special part on the muffler, essentially, that scrubs out certain parts of the really toxic stuff that's produced by your engine. Uh, So these are the things that the NOxes, so the the nitrogen oxides uh, that have had a history over, you know, the decades and things like that. They cause all these really bad health problems for people. Uh, also some certain sulfur components and things like that that are in gasoline and they end up combusted a certain way. They get scrubbed out by these catalytic converters. And the way that that works is there's all these rare earth metals like rodidi- rhodium inside a muffler. But some of these metals have become so valuable and it is so easy to steal a catalytic converter. It takes like three minutes for someone who knows what they're doing to hack one of these things off your vehicle. But it's something like, okay, so I think it was like rhodium is worth over $10,000 an ounce. So it is more it like the rhodium that is in your catalytic converter is potentially worth more than your car is worth. And like, and there are places that will buy those materials from you because it is worth so much money. And rhodium is only one of the elements. It's the most expensive one that's in these catalytic converters, but there's other elements in them as well that are all worth like more than gold per ounce. You know, gold is at something like $4,000 per ounce or something ridiculous like that. So, you know, you're talking about this. And, and again, there's a tiny amount of this in the catalytic converter, but people have caught on to this and are stealing it all over the place, cutting them out from cars. We do not endorse stealing of catalytic converters. <laughs> I feel like Davis just gave you a bit of a lesson on how to do it. Don't do it. How and why. <laughs> I don't really know where you would go and like sell this material. I don't know how easy that, that part of it actually is. But it, 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 I've heard a lot of these stories about people, you know, coming back to find out their cars. Actually, it's uh, 
so I own a camper van, so I, I read some of like the van dweller subreddits and things like that. And <laughs> that was one of the things that some of these van dwellers have, because they're often parked in one spot for a long period oh. of time. And there was a story, I think, of one guy who he woke up in the middle of the night because someone was trying to, st- or he was in his van and someone stole his catalytic converter he found out the next morning or something oh. like that. You know, so anyway, <laughs> this is a huge aside to basically kind of make this point of like, you know, there's this, we're, we're really getting up to this crunch of like, we do, we are going to need to start doing these types of explorative and exploitation things in space to continue to fuel some of the industries here on earth. But there is, it is the wild, wild west out there. There are so few rules that dictate what you can or can't do. And again, there really is nothing to stop. You know, if Sarah came into a hundred billion dollars tomorrow and wanted to build a rocket and start mining on the moon, there's not really anyone who can stop her from doing that. Sure, like the Canadian government and the U.S. government and all these governments would condemn the heck out of Sarah for doing that. What are you going to do, fire a rocket to me at the moon? I'm on the moon. Yeah, but like how, you know, how possible is it to really sanction someone who has that kind of money? Who Or you've already launched it. It's already up there. It's yeah. doing its thing, whatever that might be. You know, there's no real stopping you. Yeah, and I guess not, not a rocket because it's a confusing term, but like if they were trying to shoot me off the moon... What are you going to do? Shoot the moon? <laughs> mm-hmm. And yeah. And, and and there's also, I've heard, ethical implications of if you do start mining asteroids, who's mining them for you? Like, is it all robotic? Or are you bringing humans up there and like leaving them? Right? <laughs> Which is gets into a huge um, class issue. It's the right? plot of Armageddon. We'll train oil rig workers right. to mine asteroids rather than training astronauts how to mine. Yeah, that's the easier <laughs> way to do it. Yeah. <laughs> but it, but this like crunch of of these materials, it all ties in with our with our throwaway lifestyle, right? Like yeah. the the planned obsolescence of technology nowadays, which is when companies make something intending for it to break in a couple of years. We all know this with phones. That's why they release a new iPhone every what year, or maybe two. But mm-hmm. and people like want the newest one, and and it's like your phone will actually start working slower over time because of new software that they add onto your phone. And there was a huge lawsuit about this, or a huge, yeah, lawsuit about this a, yep. a couple of years Big ago. controversy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, because of this planned obsolescence. And then a lot of people don't recycle, like Davis mentioned, e-cycle. So that's electronic recycling. You have to take your electronic to a specified place for them to recycle it properly, which means taking out all of these uh, potentially harmful materials to the environment but then they can take them out and then they can reuse them and they can actually recycle as opposed to what we all tend to do is just throw it out. I mean, the, the simplest example is batteries. How many of us have had batteries die and you just throw them in the garbage, which you absolutely should not do because there's things in there that if they got into landfill and they seep into the, into the earth, they can get into the groundwater and they can be really, really bad for any, any organic life coming by, including humans and things. So you should always take them to designated recycling facilities, but people don't do that. And then they don't do that with electronics as well. And so that makes the these materials even rarer because we're not reusing what we already have, you know? And a lot of the material that is in certain 
recyclable electronics is like infinitely recyclable because we're talking about metals, right? So you melt them back down, they're in their pure form, and then you process them again. It's a little bit more complicated than that. Obviously, if you've ever seen a computer circuit board, it's just filled with components. Not all of those components are recyclable. So, you know, you've got to kind of, you know, deconstruct a lot of these things and then sort certain things and it becomes quite complicated. And and that is, it's this huge problem with these, these planned obsolescence. And at one point in time, it really made sense for computers because transistors were, were in this stage of development where like every couple of years we were doubling the amount of transistors that you could fit into the same space. And just like the quick computer science lesson on it is that the transistor is essentially the switch, the one or the zero that defines the binary code. So the more of those that you can get together in a small amount of area, the more powerful your computers become. So now there's this big push uh, in, you know, so you, you think about like the Intel chip in your computer, you've maybe seen those advertisements, right? That's a chip filled with all these transistors and the more that they can cram into smaller and smaller areas and the more cores they can create, which is sort of Intel's proprietary or word for it or whatever, the faster they can make these chips. And now we're at the point where they're finally starting to bridge the gap into what they call like nanoscale transistors. It, it gets very, very complicated. I don't even really understand all of it. I know a little bit about how transistors and ma are mapped and printed, and it's really interesting. But, uh, but there was a point in time where you're talking about, okay, well, now you've got a transistor, you know, to create enough computing power. Now you have a, it's the entire floor of an office building. Now, okay, now it's, you know, a filing cabinet size. And now, oh, now you can have it, you know, sit on a desk. Now you can have it the size of a notebook. Now it's in your pocket. Now it's on your wrist, you know? And so we're, that's why some of these things kept getting pushed that way. You think about the original iPhone versus like the iPhone today. And even to the point where they hit this, like the minimum size where they realized like below this size, people don't like it as a design anymore. And then the phone started getting bigger again. So now the iPhone 12 or whatever is bigger than the original iPhone, but that's not because like, the components are bigger. I mean, the cameras and stuff are, but like all of that technology has gotten more and more and more and more miniaturized. But design thinking has changed around like, oh, well, people actually want a larger screen because now they're enjoying all of their media through their phones. Yeah, they're doing a lot more than just making phone calls. Mm -hmm. yeah. But I mean, even with the, the, the nature of a lot of technology now is you can't uh, open it up and switch out a part. Right? Yeah, and a like, lot of it's designed that way. Exactly. Right? Like, like all you, Apple stuff is designed to not be repaired. Yeah, and if you if you have an Apple product and you do try to open it up and fix it yourself, you're doing what's called you're jailbreaking it and you void your warranty. Yeah. Right? So so there's there's this whole industry that says, no, no, we would rather you buy a whole new product than we than us allow you to fix one component because it brings us more revenue. It, but it but it completely dismisses the environmental impact and the economic impact to people and just the whole idea of, well, I can just buy something new as opposed to reuse a thing that I have. Mm -hmm. So at some point, because we have so much of this mentality now, we're going to have to start mining stuff in space. And it's interesting because like that, that's now why there's this generation of laws that are coming into effect in many different countries and places. It's these right to repair laws. So mm -hmm. the UK, I think, or the UK or the European Union passed one recently. Uh, that's this big landmark law around the right to repair. And, it, and you know, it's going to take a little while for it to really roll into full enforcement. But it is. It's sort of saying to these companies, like, you have to produce and provide service to allow your products to be repaired essentially ad infinitum. Like, you cannot have these things be 
created that are where you have internal policies where in three years when the new iPhone comes out, all of this generation of iPhone, we're going to sneak a little line of code into the update that slows them down, or it makes it look like your battery is draining every 10 seconds because we want to push you to the newest model. And that's the controversy that Sarah, Sarah was hinting at a little bit from a couple of years ago. Yeah. And there's even laws, uh, some laws around producer responsibility as well. Um, I know Germany has laws around uh, plastic production. So companies who produce the plastic are then responsible for what happens at its end of life. Because uh, plastic producing companies really pushed, or, and disposable good companies pushed the responsibility onto the consumer mm -hmm. to deal with the end of life. But that's really, that's really unfair. <laughs> uh, so there are some, because these big companies are the ones who have the technology and they have the money and they're the ones who will, and they're the ones who made the product. So they're the ones who should have to deal with what happens. Uh, when the consumer is no longer using it. So there there are some laws like this starting, but there are not a lot of them. And the companies they're trying to regulate now are gigantic. And I mean, this is all a pretty big aside on the, yeah. on the, <laughs> on the topic we originally came here to talk about, about, you know, the space junk and things like that. But it, it, I think it really show, you know, it's, it's one of those things where like, th this is the part of it that is a little bit more applicable to our lives or that we experience, but this is the problem that's happening up in space, but just between fewer players. And it is it's this idea of, well, you have these satellites that don't have proper end of life plans that are going up there and then just being left up there at decommissioned, defunct, floating around, causing accidents, things like that. And, or you haven't really planned about how to control descent, some of these objects back into onto earth and all of these things. And it, I think it segues quite well into this conversation a little bit uh, around the international law that dictates space. Uh, and it's not really law. Like, you know, when you think about like law in the terms of a country, right? Like if you, if Sarah murders me here in Canada, there are laws that dictate like what kind of punishment she can receive, how, you know, how she has to be convicted and things like that. And then what her appeal process is and all these things that is super well established. And then as a citizen of the country, you are, you buy into these laws. You, you sort of, you give your, you know, consent, consent is the wrong word, but you know, uh, there's the trade, it's the trade-off, right? Like you yeah. get certain services from the government and then the pay-in is that like, well, you have to live by some of this society's laws. This is why I won't throw pennies at Davis from the CN Tower. <laughs> Not only, even for only science. Only because of laws. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, that's the only thing stopping you. Yeah. Yeah, international law. I would for science, but I'm not allowed. <laughs> the I... Mythbusters already did it. I don't have to test this twice. <laughs> With my head, please. <laughs> And this is what's become quite interesting about the history of treaties in space. So the earliest treaty about space and that dictates space exploration actually comes goes back to 1967. And I personally, I always find this particular, the space race in conjunction, obviously the space race is, is incredibly centered around the, the, the Cold War. Um, but I just find this whole little sphere of human science and engineering so interesting because at, uh, because of the historical context because you have these two countries that basically do not want to cooperate on an ideological basis they are diametrically ideologically opposed that's this whole thing with you know the proxy wars in afghanistan and vietnam about spheres of influence and you know the cuban missile crisis and you, i could go on and on and on and on about this history mm -hmm. but then you get to this sort of the space exploration aspect of it and you still have all these international treaties that came out from that 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 era when in the 60s when things were at their hottest in the cold war where they still went okay no 
we need to have some agreed upon rules about what we're going to do in space because this is going to get out of control really fast. So the first one, which was sort of ratified in 1967, is the Outer Space Treaty. It has a much longer name that it was originally put in under, but that is kind of what it's known today as, is this Outer Space Treaty. And it has it is the most widely accepted of these treaties, and it has over 110 member countries. Uh, you know, so again, these are countries that don't really have a presence in space, but they have signed this treaty because it also affects them because they're affected by the people who do have these robust space programs. And there's a few others, right? There's, there's another one from 1968 called the Rescue Agreement, the one from 1972 called the Liability Convention, from 76, the Registration Convention, and then in 1984, the Moon Agreement. Uh, the Moon Agreement, I, I say it that way because it's funny. You know, it just, it's, it, it's funny to think about. Um, are you on the moon agreement? Yeah, yes, yeah. yeah, sir. The funny thing about it is not many countries are on the moon agreement. <laughs> it's actually considered something of a failed treaty. And then beyond that, there's, there's about five major principles that have been agreed upon as well. And, you know, the Outer Space Treaty is sort of the mo is big, the big flagship one. And a lot of them deal with very similar aspects to what this, the Outer Space Treaty talks about and are sort of extensions of the parts that it didn't really cover. But mostly what these treaties have to do with is the idea that space use is for the benefit of all. And that if you're doing science in space, it has to have the interests of all of humanity first and foremost. And this is, you know, obviously this is a bit of a relic from the Cold War and this idea that you cannot go up into space specifically for the purposes of trying to get the upper hand on your ideological enemy. And then the others what that were added after, like the Rescue Agreement and the Liability Convention, just start to add on to some of these rules and conventions for what you can and cannot do. So the Rescue Agreement is this idea that, like, if you can rescue a marooned astronaut, or like, for example, you know, you're in space and you need to force re-entry and you land in Russia and you're an American astronaut, that there's an agreement between those two countries that you will not be held as a like political prisoner and, and used for political leverage over the other country, right? Which was obviously super important in the 60s. Um, I, I'm sure it lays out a few other things like you're not allowed to interrogate them and stuff like that, but I didn't, I didn't read the entire, I don't know, 200 page document or whatever. It's not dedicated. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And um, the liability convention then again actually does, it, it stipulates who is liable when certain things happen in space or when things from space affect the earth. So the liability convention really goes to say that like, if me, Davis, the country launches a satellite and it crash lands in Sarah, the country, and it causes untold damage or whatever, I am liable for that damage because it's my rocket. Doesn't matter that it didn't land in my country. I'm the one who put it up into this situation to begin with. But again, these are these are all trees. These are just things that people have sort of signed into agreement for. But there's not really necessarily like all these like punishments or things like that. Um, one important detail actually to, to reiterate is that one of the first things that these treaties did was they outlawed weapons of mass destruction and nuclear testing in space. You know, towards the, the end of the 60s, we, you know, nuclear testing was already reaching this point where like it was so frowned upon, you know, the constituents of the countries just hated seeing these tests done. And, you know, nowadays where if, if a country tests a nuclear weapon, it is like, it is gangbusters out there. Like it's nuts. It's this huge international, you know, political and, you know, whatchamacallit, cri it's this big crisis, yeah. you know, because it's just one, you don't see it done very often. Uh, and Two, often, <laughs> why are you doing it? Yeah. And, yeah. And that's why it comes, you know, this, you know, not to get too off topic, but like, 
you know, a lot of times it is if, if you're testing a nuclear weapon, it's because you don't have a nuclear arsenal and you're trying to build one and then you create all these extra problems. But that, that is not worth going into <laughs> at all. No, uh, leave that one for out, the political podcast too. <laughs> outside of our scope. Um, yeah. Uh, but we can see this uh, this like rescue agreement and um, this working together in space really well with the the International Space Station and um, how it operates. I mean, we know that there's there's astronauts from multiple countries up there. Uh, they they work together on research. The components are from different countries. But there's also if they do get into an issue where the stuff is flying through space and they have to avoid it, uh, if there's if there's enough chance or if there's enough uh, warning and the data is accurate enough about something flying through the orbit and it's going to hit the space station, they can actually move the space station. But this, uh, I believe, uses maybe Russian, the Russian rockets, or like if there's a Russian or European ship docked there, they can use that to kind of just nudge the station out of the way of this, the path of this thing coming to hit it, um, this junk. Uh, or if there's a big enough risk, they can actually send astronauts into the Soyuz spacecraft, which functions as a sort of life raft. And so that wouldn't just be the Russian astronauts. It would be whoever's up there. Um, and this is, there's a, if it's a one in 100,000 chance, they'll maybe try to move the station. Um, and if there's a one in 10,000 chance, then that's maybe when they're going to use the life raft a bit more. All within the idea of it's not going to cause the astronauts greater risk to do these maneuvers. But yeah, they really do have to work together because as we talked about a lot with the Mars, Mars podcast, any problem in space can be life-threatening. So if you're up there and there's only like six of you and you're, but you're talking to mission control and which mission controls are awake or active and who has access to the technology and is able to help you, it's really important to help each other. Yeah. And, uh, just as a little bit of an, uh, an aside there is that the Soyuz craft uh, was this sort of launch vehicle that's been used for the last, since the decommissioning of the shuttle to get astronauts, both Russian cosmonauts and NASA astronauts and other international astronauts to the ISS. Uh, and just recently, just very, very recently, actually, uh, SpaceX has now taken over um, all American launches, uh, you know, launches of American astronauts into space through their new um, Crew Dragon X, I believe is what it's called. It's a very similar piece of technology to the Soyuz. It's basically just a little capsule that is used, like that's affixed to the top of the rocket and used to send astronauts up to the International Space Station. Uh, but, you know, for the longest time, we've been using this Russian rocket, which is actually the Soyuz was originally developed in like the 60s or 70s. Wow. And uh, we've been using it ever since. And all the rock, you know, uh, astronauts used to have to launch from Kazakhstan and stuff like that, because that's where the, the launch pad was and all these things. But this is sort of to circle back to kind of like why we were talking about this today. These international agreements around space are sort of what you know, China is why there was sort of these this back and forth between these international governments and the space agencies about what was going on with this long march rocket. And it really was just because like, you know, basically some of these countries, some of these agencies basically saying, hey, look, this is not best practice. Like, we really wish you hadn't done this. You need to be a bit more responsible out in space. And, and China sort of being like, well, you're kind of lambasting us for something that one, you did in the past anyway, and two, like, we didn't really intend for this to happen this way. And like, you know, it's going to come down, you know, it's it's not going to cause a problem. But, you know, it's, it's essentially is that like, that's sort of 
what has become so interesting about the political conversation about this, right, is that, like, there are no rules that were really violated. It's not the same as, like, you know, violating the Geneva Convention or something like that, uh, which is still also just a, tr a treaty, a convention that was ratified by a number of different countries, but is well accepted and is used in international law, you know, so you can be prosecuted under the principles of the Geneva Convention if you, say, commit a war crime. But it's just not the same in space right now. So you, and now you're starting to see these incredibly uh, innovative new space programs in India and China that are starting to reach these same spaces that the, that, you know, NASA and the Russian Federation have been in for a number of years now. And it's starting to crowd the playing field. And it's starting to become clearer and clearer that we need to have these very clear cut international laws that have teeth and can be enforced so that, you know, the next time an out of control rocket is left in decaying orbit, you know, that they're there and, and potentially does cause damage to a populated area, uh, that there are ways to deal with that as an international community. Yeah. And that will help to hopefully reduce the, the potential of that happening because you'll have, uh, some sort of ramification for it happening. Right. And, and, I mean, I know we're out of the space race now, but the technology race is is on and in full force. And and it really, it, we've done this as humans forever. Like whenever there's a new technology and we're such a competitive society, especially with other countries, that we just start competing. And we just start thinking, how can we make the next thing before they make the next thing? And how can we get to the next place before you get to the next pace? We did this with nuclear technology, right? With the, we built it before we thought of the ethics of it. And this happens all over the place. I mean, your scientists were so preoccupied with whether they or not they could. They didn't stop to think if they should. <laughs> Jurassic Park quote. I put little dinosaurs in our in our notes document. Um, but yeah, the, the atom bomb is a classic example, right? We develop something and then ask what the implications are and think about if we should have done it. And the next two big examples, we've, we've got space as an example right now. And then we've got AI as the one of the next big frontiers of should we do this? But people already are, you know, mm -hmm. even to the point where there's a kind of more like mundane examples or ones that aren't so kind of like world ending in their <laughs> possibilities. Sorry, I'm dramatic. <laughs> well, it's fair. Right? Like, and I mean, we're talking about a pretty dramatic subject, you know, objects falling from space yeah. is pretty dramatic. And it's why it captured so much international attention uh, the past couple weeks. Um, but even like the laser, for example, um, was a technology, you know, it was a research technology essentially that someone was like, well, I think I can do this with light. I think I can get light to behave in this way, or I can, you know, create this emission of light that will do this thing. And then he did it and we had the laser, but we had no applications for it. No one had really, no one had ever thought ahead of like, well, one day we're going to have these light emitting diodes and they're going to shoot, you know, <laughs> spectral emissions and it'll do all these things. And then it'll, you know, we'll be able to play around with the properties of light. It's like no one had thought that far ahead because the technology for lasers didn't exist. Then all of a sudden the laser's invented. And then, you know, a couple of years later, you've got laser scanners at the checkout. Now you can't go through your life without lasers, you know, to the point where the most of a lot of our modern society wouldn't exist without lasers and being able to kind of the way it was able to like miniaturize certain things. Right. Um, a CD is just the same as a vinyl record, but with lasers rather than like a physical stylus. You know, it, it is. It's essentially, it's all yeah. these little grooves, yeah. I'm doing air quotes, that are read by the laser, where a 
you know, stylus on a, a record player is the movement of the stylus is read by the machine and converted into electrical sound signal, but it's these physical grooves on the record. And with this sort of inventing for the sake of inventing, you don't know who's going to take it. So they might take it and they might make scanners at the cache and CDs, CD readers with it, but they also might take it and militarize it. And that happens a lot. Like, well, that's what happened with the, with, with nukes, right? But that's what yeah. happened with nuclear energy was that they're, the physicists were sort of saying, like, hey, atoms start to do this really interesting thing, and there's the potential for limitless energy down this technological route. And then, you know, lo and behold, a world war is going on at the time, and it becomes this big arms race of, okay, great, it's, it's unlimited energy, but you know what unlimited energy is? A bomb. Exactly, right? Like, so it is, it's this, um, it's the, uh, what's the word, like, not manipulation, but it's this twisting of, you know, what, uh, why, why you might be pushing this technological or this scientific frontier, and then the sometimes the applications that you don't even foresee. Yeah, and the idea that you always have to think of the ethics of new inventions as you do it, which people don't do because scientists get scientists and inventors and engineers they get really excited about the technology itself, and it often there is like there's just a pure drive to invent or to to explore and to discover but there's there's a lack of ethical thought mm -hmm. around okay well what could this be used for and should we bring this into the world and it's really interesting too and i think this this still sticks into the conversation we're having about about space is that it's not the same in all fields of science right like in biology doing certain there we know there are certain things we can do and we know that we should not do them. Cloning. Well, <laughs> certain types of cloning, right? Or cloning of humans or certain things with humans. Genetic engineering and all that sort of exactly. stuff. Exactly. We know it's a very slippery slope and people are very quick to sound the alarm on like, you know, hey, CRISPR is great and all, but we have to be very careful to make sure that people aren't all of a sudden altering germ lines for infants and things like that and doing things that are not life-saving things that are like oh i want to i want my kid to have a different color eye yeah. you know because you have no idea the ramifications that that might cause we just don't understand genetics well enough so that's a you know bioethics is one of these areas where people are very quick to sound the alarm and as a society we have this very strong perception of like no this cannot be the the island of doctor whatever where he's splicing humans and animal genes together or whatever it's like this is we know that this is not good but with certain other tech certain other things that don't have that human element like space travel, you know, when there's not humans involved, like launching satellites and things like that, we sometimes, it's sometimes very easy to forget about, yeah, these ethical considerations or like, you know, you start thinking about the physics of a bunch of particles slamming into each other and producing energy. And then you don't think about the possibility of, well, what happens when you drop that reaction on a city? Yeah. So, you know, <laughs> that's a very yeah. heavy place to end off, but. Yeah, very light. <laughs> you know, we brought it back around. <laughs> This has been a really interesting, uh, you know, to, to, to say it this way, it's, it's been an interesting news cycle over yeah. this rocket, really, you know? Yeah, and it's I feel like a lot of the, the concern and the, the anxiety and the frustrations I was seeing uh, from friends about this was around, it's really like, what gives a country the right to potentially drop stuff on us from space just because it didn't do its work up front? You know, and you really get into these, like, these, these human rights questions. Right. And that's kind of and we don't think about that with space because we all think about we think about space in terms of the Mars missions and that exploration and that the and, final frontier mm -hmm. and all of that, as opposed to how it could impact us here and now today in our everyday lives. 
and but you can't run around saying the sky is falling. Mm-hmm. But this time you could. <laughs> this time, this time you would be completely justified, Chicken Little, for running around and saying that the sky was falling. Yeah, and I, I think that's a really good point. Is that you know when we talk about Mars and the Moon and things like that, it is all of this, you know, the to the benefit of all mankind, but because it's the pushing the frontier, but. We understand quite well the the science of exploring space around the Earth in low Earth orbit, and now you are seeing this. You know, now we start to have we start to have to ask ourselves questions that we didn't have to ask ourselves in the '60s and the '70s. You know, there were obviously questions we did have to ask about: Should we be testing nukes in space? No, pretty much everybody agrees on that. You know, <laughs> but now we're asking ourselves different different questions: Who owns space? Who owns things when they go into space? Who's responsible for them? What commercialization should be allowed, shouldn't be allowed? How do we control that? How do we dictate all of these laws back and forth? Whose responsibility is it to clean up space? Mm -hmm. That's another Mm -hmm. big question. Yeah. And like so many things, right, the ultimate answer is is that it's all of our responsibilities. It's all of these governments that want to have a stake in space. It's, you know, because like the the Outer Space Treaty says, the, the exploration of space is supposed to be for the benefit of all mankind. And so that also includes cleaning up after ourselves and you know this is it's sad to see essentially that you kind of you know once again it's the human mindset of like well infinite space what's the problem with a few rocket engines up there and within 50 you know 60 plus years of space exploration we've already created our own problem with litter in space you got to think about space like a national park you you leave nothing but footprints take only pictures and but, you can't even leave footprints in space, so it should be easy. Unless you're on the moon. You can leave footprints on the moon. All right. <laughs> in, in the vast majority of space. <laughs> awesome. Well, yeah, I think that kind of that kind of wraps up this talk. I know we kind of ambled all over the place with this one, but it's, it, it's, it is. It's just because it's this interesting part of, you know, technology and industry that's moving forward in lockstep and it's bringing other industries on Earth with it. And it connects to so many different things that, you know, we really couldn't help but kind of going on all these different di- different directions, really. I thought I thought that was quite interesting. But I, I agree. It's it's something that I mean, when I first heard about it, I was like, that's kind of scary, but it really doesn't affect me. But when you start looking at at the orbital debris, you look at how much space junk there is and you look at how this is an increasing problem and there don't seem to be enough things to fix it. And then like, we need this, we need this for internet, we need this for GPS, we- It's gonna revolutionize all of those things. And if we can get asteroid mining going, then it will really increase our ability to get these rare materials, which like, there's there's just so many ramifications on us in our everyday lives that, oh, this one was, this one was fun. Going all around, conversation-wise. Mm, I, I quite liked it. Um, Hope you, you, hopefully you liked it. <laughs> yeah, the most important part is that you liked it. But, I mean, we are the ones that have to sit here and do it, so. <laughs> um, it's a team sport. We all should hopefully like it. Yes. I, I, we hope that you enjoyed this episode, as we hope that you enjoy all of our episodes. But, yeah, so that that kind of takes us to the end today. Um there's a there's some interesting things in the news actually as well that we you know I we were talking before recording where we were kind of prepping and things like that that there were a couple of different stories that in the news this week that we could have covered as a topic. Uh, the other one was kind of uh, this ransomware attack on some infrastructure in the state, specifically a pipeline. Now it's creating sort of this potential for some gas shortages throughout the states. There might be a trickle-up effect up here into Canada, but they're probably, you know, we're not going to be running out of gas at the pumps, but you might see the prices go up. 
Uh, but my little PSA for this week is why I bring this story up, is that you're starting to see photos of people online, like, hoarding gasoline because they're anticipating these shortages. Uh, and they're putting them into, like, Rubbermaid containers, like the big ones you'd use when you're, like, moving and stuff like that. And my little PSA is that you should never, ever, ever transport gasoline in anything other than a jerry can. And a jerry can is also not foolproof. So sometimes what people forget about is that the gas is a liquid, and yes, the gas is the liquid will burn, but it's the vapor that combusts. So even your car engine runs off this principle as that it vaporizes the liquid gasoline, and that is what allows your engine to ignite it and run. And so people, sometimes you've seen these photos of people putting gasoline into not properly sealed containers, then driving around with it, it will fill up the vehicle with gas vapor and then it's and gas is very easy to combust the entire chemical design of gasoline is so that it will combust easily so um i don't anticipate that we'll be seeing very much uh, of this type of gas hoarding in canada but this is just a good rule in general and why you shouldn't you know even when you do fill a jerry can why you shouldn't keep it in your car like long you shouldn't drive around with a filled jerry can like that's you know that's not good practice because you are a you are it's an accident waiting to happen. The other thing that sometimes people forget is that gas is a solvent. It dissolves things, especially plastics. So not all rubber-made containers or certain types of plastics are meant to contain gasoline. It will melt them. So again, you're now putting these things into improper containers and then you're potentially spilling gasoline everywhere once they melt apart. Yeah, if you've seen uh the, so if you've seen Breaking Bad, you've seen this when uh, I think it was Jesse put the he put a body in a bathtub with all the chemicals, but the chemicals could eat through the bathtub, and he had to get like a specific sort of plastic for it. Yeah, because plastics there's actually hundreds of different types of plastics, and they all have different properties. So yeah, if you're gonna transport mm -hmm. gas, Jerry can. Yeah, Don't just put it in your uh, your moving containers. Exactly. So that's my that's my little PSA for this week. Uh, maybe this will make it into the podcast. Who knows? Uh, and if you want to learn more about plastic, head uh, over to Third Sock from the Sun. We didn't even plan that. Head over to Third Sock from the Sun uh, and find all about uh, plastic is uh, the current series that I'm in. I'm on YouTube. There's also thirdsockfromthesun.com. Check them out. Let me know what you think. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for, for joining us on this adventure into space junk uh, for... <laughs> All of us here at Temporary Experts, she's Sarah Bannister. He's Davis Leong. And together we've been your Temporary, temporary experts. experts. Thanks for listening. Oh.